Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melbert. My name is Harold Nickel. The infrastructure that allows everything from streaming movies and songs to international banking, commerce, and satellite-directed intelligence and defense is not as secure as it should be. Some in government and business believe that cyber attacks are a certainty and that the best way to prepare for them is to adopt the same habits as preppers do, like hoarding food and gold and ammunition. But perhaps a more rational approach would be to view information security as both a technical and corporate governance issue. So this week, Ren will describe some general guidelines for us around this issue and also talk about some specifics. And Ren, every time we talk about this, I get really nervous that the separate functions of managing potential crises, testing software, training code writers, all of that along with including employee accountability, they're just all more than any organization, regardless of size, can ever manage. Please tell me that I'm wrong. You're very wrong. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so, that was kind of what people thought when um, we moved away from some free market practices like, you know, slavery and, and child labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we instituted things like workplace protection. Okay. Okay. People panic. There's no way we can handle this. We can't do it. And guess what? Today, we take that all in stride. We don't even think about it. Okay. So most of what we have to do when we're faced with these challenges, and that's why I put it in that more uh, grandiose mm-hmm. <laughs> example, mm-hmm. isn't that we have to change our work and then we have to think of it in the way you outlined the question of all this long list of shoots we have to do. It's really about changing our mindset okay. and how we think about the work that we're doing and how we do the work. Okay. And sometimes it does mean reexamining why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's mm-hmm. something we talked about a lot is how important uh, the answer to the question why yes. is. Um, but when we, when we figure out those important answers, we actually find that the rest of it falls into place pretty neatly. And that's the advantage of using some of the more modern workplace methodologies that Mm -hmm. we've also talked about, like agile practices and lean practices, Mm -hmm. because they support this modern world in which we have to be constantly balancing various stakeholder needs, which is Mm -hmm. the core of governance. Governance is all about protecting stakeholder value, right? Mm -hmm. And stakeholder value sometimes contradicts itself. Okay. Or seemingly does. They <laughs> right? only talk about what shareholders may want versus what customers may want. Customers want always want quality, but shareholders want to produce it cheaply. Those are conflicting priorities. Mm-hmm. That's true. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And those are things that as business leaders, if we can't navigate that world, then we need to find a new job. Oh, Okay. <laughs> okay, that was harsh, but yeah. it was meant to be. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with regulatory environments. If you can't handle governance, mm-hmm. and regulations are just a form of governance, mm-hmm. if you can't handle that, you probably need a new job. Okay, Ren. So is there some type of governance template or framework that already exists 
for information security? Not really. We don't have a industry standard or practice, if you will. And we're at risk at this point of someone deciding that for us. So we've talked about this before. The, the challenge with governance is, especially when we're talking about business governance, is if you don't do it, somebody else will. Mm-hmm. And that somebody else is usually lawyers first through lawsuits. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yuck, right? Yuck is right. Because that's expensive and painful and almost always has significant reputa- reputational um, impacts, which means mm-hmm. that it has um, a, a detrimental impact to your company's value mm-hmm. because brand is always a part of every company's valuation. Right. Um, and if the lawyers don't impose some sort of governance, then it winds up being a government. Yeah. And the first rounder to our is often by politicians who don't understand what they're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but let's, you know, the lawyers, let's stick with that for a second. Um, They're not there to get good governance. They're going to pretend they are, Mm -hmm. right? We want to make sure this never happens to anyone else again. Right. We've all heard that. Mm Mm-hmm. And to some degree, usually the victims that the lawyers are acting on behalf of, that is true. That's almost always why they do this, because mm-hmm. contrary to the press, class action lawsuits are extremely painful for the people bringing the action. Yes. The people who, the only people who benefit really are the lawyers. Yes, almost always. And their their motivation is not making sure that they don't care if it happens to someone else or not. That's probably And if it does true, happen yeah. to someone else, that's more money for them. Cha-ching, well, right? they, can, they can join the class. <laughs> that's right. Ka-ching is indeed right? the truth. Yeah. So, you know, you got to kind of look at the behaviors and outcomes and the motivations of the parties. And when we talk about that first round of external governance, it more often than not is attorneys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is attorneys. Yep. That's right. So in in that instance then, Ren, um, you know, should the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, or some other government body, should they just mandate cybersecurity and that it be part of every company's governance rules? This is where it gets kind of tricky. Right, mm-hmm. because when we talked about good governance versus ineffective or bad governance, mm-hmm. and so this is the, the government is almost always the second round of external governance. Right, most of us kind of cringe when we think about that. Yes, because we have more examples of ineffective governance, especially when it comes to new technology from our government, than we have good examples. Yes. And providing guidelines, so we look at the first couple of rounds of um, SOX, Sarbanes-Oxley. Mm-hmm. It was really about changing how we audit technology. Yes. And it was very effective. It was expensive and it was painful. And it completely 
change the mindset of how we do technology and how we document our technology and huge improvements. And if people are being objective and honest, they'll all agree we all benefited from it. Absolutely. Especially, um, you know, and this is the world I came up in, right, with the early uh, changes with Sarbanes-Oxley and Basel One, And they went from auditing, the biggest change was they went from auditing the inputs and the outputs of our technology to auditing the entire thing. Mm -hmm. So even auditing what was going on inside our technology, which actually required greater governance within the companies. And what did that happen? And I, I built my career in this. We use those regulations to actually improve our operations, and we save millions and millions of dollars. Right. Good. That's what yeah. happens with good, not just good governance from you know regulators, but also leadership that understands the power of governance. Mm-hmm. Is they look at these regulations and they go, how do I make this a differentiator or benefit my company? And we looked at it and went, okay, here's what they're trying to achieve. That actually could he- be a huge um, benefit from us as we develop our work. Um, we have more traceability. We have more auditability of our work. And that resulted in reduced production support costs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So people weren't running around <laughs> looking for answers or having to do experiments in production to figure out what the problem was. Mm-hmm. They could go to the source. They could go to the documentation and go, oh, that's what's happening. This is what we need to do to fix it. Mm-hmm. And literally millions of dollars, and that was just one uh, the one branch of one company. Okay. It was millions. Okay. That's good. Mm-hmm. The bad is when we get things like later versions of Sarbanes-Oxley that forms and checklists and all that kind of stuff. Right. And let's be honest, we get that because of the people who try and get around the first round. Mm-hmm. That's who right. have it in their mindset, government is evil, governance is bad, I don't want to do this, Blah. Yeah. <laughs> so they work with their their lawyers to get around the regulations, and so the government has to, you know, and usually at the expense of customers, almost always, they're the ones who wind up paying for this. Sure. Nine times out of ten, you know, we can go through the list. We have Tyco, you know, um, Enron. I mean, it was the shareholders and the customers who paid every single time mm-hmm. for those governance failures. Absolutely. Every single time. It's not the government. <laughs> no. <laughs> they don't pay. <laughs> no. Um, and, and that's where, you know, I've really advocated on here that we as business leaders, one, need to step up and create industry standards for um, cyber technology governance. Mm-hmm. And I keep it outside of risk management because risk management is largely ignored in most companies. Mm-hmm. But everybody understands cyber security. We hear breach after breach after breach. And so that's it's a deliberate choice. Yes. To talk about them separately. And let's be honest, right now of all the risk facing companies, cybersecurity is um the most pervasive. Mm-hmm. And it's the one that has already done the greatest amount of damage to the greatest number of 
organizations, government, non-government, corporate, non-profit, individual. Yep. And, and that's why I've really been advocating so hard that we really invest in our IT infrastructure and that cybersecurity become part of everything we do, even to the point that we use our internal auditors and governance professionals to help us build cybersecurity into everything we do. Mm-hmm. And that's not just the technology. That's also business architecture practices, policies, procedures should also be enhancing cybersecurity mm-hmm. at every turn. And we need to empower our employees, business and technology, to use, you know, I would use the Toyota metaphor. Yes. When we find a major problem, anybody on the floor can stop the entire line. Yes. Yeah. Anybody in any company who sees a breach or what might be a breach should be empowered to the point that if you don't stop the line, if you think there's a problem, you lose your job. But if you stop the line and you're wrong, mm-hmm. you're rewarded. Yeah. Because it's better to be wrong <laughs> as long as you're not just stopping the line to get the bonus, right? Well, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's better to be wrong and we're like, okay, we had a good exercise, we had a good practice on how we're going to deal with this, then it is to let a breach go and not address it. Yeah, the analogy of stopping the the manufacturing assembly line at the auto plant is is a really good one, particularly in the world of computer code writing and the world of cybersecurity. And, you know, err on the side of conservative – and exactly. And then we've talked, we've talked about this with using agile practices to enhance cybersecurity. And a mm-hmm. perfect example that I've given is if you have an entire scrum team or an agile team dedicated to cybersecurity in your business, and an entire makes it sound huge. I mean, we're talking about five to nine people. Mm-hmm. And for most, even a, you know, a 50 person company, that's not that big of a develop, uh, investment compared to the uh, downside of a cyber breach, mm-hmm. right? Five people is not that big. And especially when you're talking one is a product owner, the other one's a scrum master. So you have three developer slash QA folks. That makes the investment even smaller. Right. And those right. people are empowered to, you know, the metaphor, stop the line. Yes. When they see something unexpected, or unfortunate happening. Yes. So let's talk then about some specific cases that were in the news lately. And let's start with Apple. Okay. The FBI wants Apple to open up the iPhones of the San Bernardino terrorists so that they can see who else might have been involved in that attack or in the planning of that attack. Apple cites privacy as the reason that they will not cooperate. So could better governance help negotiate the boundary between the public's right to privacy along with the expectation that the public be protected by government agencies? Yes, and it's a little bit more complicated. Um, 
so right constitutionally um, in the United States of America, it has been held for a very long time. And I'm not a constitutional scholar, so I can't give you the exact case or year or anything, but that sure. we have a constitutional right to privacy. Mm-hmm. And that that right to privacy is the underlying right for many other rights, which makes sense. If we, how can you have due process of law if you don't have an underlying right to privacy? Good question. Et the, yeah. the right. However, um, the Supreme Court has been sort of whittling away at that and decreasing where we have a right to privacy, which is why the Patriot Act, which I can never remember its full name, because <laughs> yeah. Patriot is actually an acronym, but mm-hmm. the Patriot Act has, has un, uh, stood up to some constitutional challenges, not all, but some. Right. And that's what the FBI is using or was using with Apple. Now they say they don't need Apple's help. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest with you, I knew from the beginning they didn't need Apple's help because yeah. this is my world. And <laughs> I know you can go on to eBay and you can buy a password breaker for any iPhone. And, and, they're really and now I know. And now you know, and not everybody else knows, and anybody who's a cybersecurity professional knows that. Okay. iPhones are one of the easiest phones to break into. Okay. So when the FBI made this announcement, there's a whole bunch of us that just laughed until we fell right off our chairs. Because oh, we're like, seriously, FBI? You've never heard of eBay? <laughs> you know, it's just like, really? But that's okay. What they were really gearing up for is they wanted to have the conversation we're having. Yeah. But they wanted to have it in the courts. Oh, yeah. And to be honest with you, Apple wanted to have the conversation we're having. Because what they, I, FBI was asking them to do was to create a backdoor into their I, their phones. And mm-hmm. we've talked about that. Oh, yeah. Some of the biggest breaches, like Ashley Madison, were backdoor hacks. There's Absolutely. a couple other ones that were back, that we suspect, like what we know, um, of a couple of the major retailers that were hacked, what we've learned is those were backdoor hacks as well. Mm-hmm. And so Apple should, any company, should flip out oh, <laughs> at yeah. any government agency, anybody, asking them to make backdoor hacks easier. Because what happens is you're not having access to one cell phone. Right. Then you have access to every single cell phone on the market. Yeah. So this, this Apple wasn't fighting to protect the privacy of two people in San Bernardino. Right. They were fighting to protect the privacy of every single person with a cell phone. Yeah. Well, right? Yeah. And they were fighting to protect their own company because if their phones develop a reputation of being easy to hack, then people are going to be less likely to buy them. That's right. Right? Absolutely. And so they couldn't be seen cooperating with the FBI. No cell phone company could be. Mm-hmm. Because then when we go to get our next cell phone, we're not going to get theirs. Oh, that's right. Because we know we have absolutely no privacy on our cell phone at all. Yeah. And no one wants that. So it really is an important conversation that unfortunately the FBI has put an end to. Mm-hmm. About not only our fundamental right to privacy as Americans, mm-hmm. 
and where our where the constitutional lines are. But also, what are, as individuals, what are our, our cybersecurity needs and requirements? So when we go back to good governance, protecting stakeholder value, one of the mm-hmm. stakeholders is always a customer, right? Mm-hmm. So we as customers, what are we saying is our stakeholder value when it comes to cybersecurity? Yep, and right. we, as customers, have not had a good conversation about that. No. So we talked earlier about companies have not had a good <laughs> conversation and come to alignment and consensus on what cybersecurity means for companies. Mm-hmm. We don't have that as shareholders, and we don't have that as as customers. So there's a lot of agreement and conversations that are very important, critically important to our well-being that we're not having right now. Yeah, I, I. Uh think that um, of any of any question we've had on on your podcast Ren, that that one is among the more complex um, Agreed. So let's let's talk about another one let's talk about um, anonymous the <laughs> hacktivist group anonymous they have according to them declared war on Donald Trump and regardless I guess of anybody's political orientation, does he or any private or public person risk a similar attack by saying things that somebody might find unpopular? Absolutely. Um, We all do. And that's something that um, we women talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. I luckily, knock on wood, have not been subjected to this behavior, but there are a lot of women who have been. Oh, wow. And not because they were expressing something that was unpopular, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them were just expressing their particular expertise, and they've been, we call it trolled, trolling. Okay. They've been trolled. They've had their phone numbers, their addresses published. They've had a violent threats made against them. Wow. Um, and a violent threat online without your address is kind of like annoying and creepy. Mm-hmm. A violent threat online with your address is just yeah. terrifying. Yeah, I would imagine. And and it's, you know, I don't want to pick on anonymous because what they did, uh, I'm never going to justify. I, I believe publishing anybody's personal identification information should be against the law. It should, mm-hmm. That shouldn't be restricted to financial services and healthcare uh, companies, which is what the current regulations are. It should be against law for anyone to do it, period. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and that's the problem, you know, is that individuals can do this. Organizations like Anonymous can do it. Um, Donald Trump did it. He put on Twitter a senator's personal cell phone. You know what? You're right. He sure did. Right? And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one of the reasons I think he's so quiet about this because he, you know, he did it first. Yeah. And I'm of the vein that two wrongs don't make a right. No, they do not. So I'm not going to say that just because Donald Trump did it means it's okay for Anonymous because I don't believe that's true. Right. I think it's always wrong and it should be illegal 
to publish personal identification information, PPI or PII, excuse me, right. always. Um, and, and it should not be limited to one organization or another. Now, as to the risks, um, this is where um, our – so we switched from regulations that are laws for organizations, and we're going to switch to laws mm-hmm. <laughs> that are laws for people. We This is currently not illegal. Okay. Um, and it's where our laws just have not kept up with technology. Yeah, that's a good point. Because it's, it used to be, so we we take it into the you know the olden days, right? Where where you would have published this before was in the newspapers. Oh yeah. The newspapers had human beings called editors, mm-hmm. right? Who made sure that that didn't happen. Yeah, that's right. The internet does not have that. There are no editors. There are no filters. No editors and no filters. That's exactly right. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, you know, beyond the fact that, you know, he kind of started it. Um, and this is just my two cents. It's the unpopular speech that needs protecting the most. Um, I, I absolutely agree. I also think that I find it weird um, that we've gotten to a point where being offended means that you are justified in some action towards the person who offended you. Yeah. Being offended is a personal choice. You choose to be offended by something. Right. That's so It's well not said. an instinctive, natural reaction. You choose to be offended. Yeah. And so you should hold yourself accountable for that, not the person who offended you. Wow. That's... It, that's so well said, and um, what comes of being raised from by someone you know studies yeah. psychology. So. Well, <laughs> that too, but um, just the fact that that being offended has become so pervasive, um, and we could probably do a whole show about that. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of there's much more knowledgeable people when it comes to that stuff who probably already have. <laughs> well, probably, but I, you know, it was just. Um, but just you know, a, it, it does amaze me, at, and people just say, well, that offends me, as if mm-hmm. that means something. You know, I'm just always kind of in my head going, so? Yeah, yeah. And it, I don't understand your point. Yeah, I, well, for me, I'm I an American. I, I'm an American woman with mm-hmm. a brain. My very existence is offensive to about one-fifth of the planet, and I'm well, not so I'm just that's exactly like, right. And I don't understand your point. Well, that's right. And there you are out there driving your own car and voting. How and, dare I? Yeah. <laughs> and like that's you're exactly expressing right. uh, my intelligence, my experience, putting my skills out there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's all offended, offensive to someone. They choose to be offended by that. There's no reason for them to be because it doesn't. Um, affect those people who are offended. That's right. That's right. They choose it. All right. So next. Back, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back to computers and uh, <laughs> cybersecurity. There's, um, of course, foreign governments that are mm-hmm. always trying to break into um, the Department of Defense and they've succeeded in some very well publicized attacks that, that worked. In fact, um, I think it was this week that Department of Justice indicted seven Iranians for conducting attacks on U.S. banks mm-hmm. and even trying to shut down 
a dam, the Bowman Avenue Dam that's in Rye Brook, New York. The FBI said that the basic that basic cyber hygiene remains at the forefront of the battle against cyber attacks. Okay. What types of governance, instruction, coaching, direction can you give that applies in this and other similar instances? This is where, I know it's not going to feel like it, especially after that description, but this is actually where we're doing a really good job. Okay. I'm going to pause for a fact. <laughs> because okay. the laws that are applicable to these type of instances have been on the books pretty much since the United States was born, and actually since the Barbary Wars. So if you want to, like, go Google crazy, mm. Barbary Wars is the very first post-revolutionary wars that the United right. States was engaged in. And um, they tried to sabotage us, and actually they were, they did, and we retaliated. That's the whole, that's an incredibly simplistic description, so I'm sorry, historians, you can do a better job than me. But these kind of attacks are routine, have been routine for hundreds of years. Um, Our laws in our government agencies, the CIA and the FBI, are fundamentally well-equipped to deal with them and have done an excellent job, especially if you're on the inside um, Uh and, you know, this industry like me and you know how many are really happening. Yeah. Yeah. They do an extraordinary job. And, And like I said, I can't emphasize enough the existing laws and regulations that we have protect us very well for these types of instances. Okay. Where, and the practices that we've had within the FBI and the CIA have done an excellent job, and the NSA, you shouldn't leave them out, have done a very good job in protecting us. Where they're very weak, and this is why I bring in the NSA, is Mm -hmm. when it comes to more modern forms of... um, cyber attacks and espionage and counterfeiting and things like that where they struggle. Okay. And that has been a criticism of of people like me for, you know, 15, 16 years is that the government has not caught up or, you know, at all caught up with modern forms of counterfeiting. Okay. So credit card thefts and and, um, identity thefts and things like that, that's where they remain very weak. And it's because the laws just haven't caught up with this and be written, rewritten. That's all they really need to be. They just need to be updated. We don't need new laws. We need an updated version of existing laws Uh that include those kind of activities. So we think of identity theft, the laws are pretty much written for someone who knows you or goes to your mailbox and steals your mail and things like that. They're not written for that prince in Nigeria, you know, things like that, or the the phishing emails that you get. This is, oh, there's been a breach on your bank account. We need you to come in here and, you know, reset your password. They're not written for those guys. No. And those kind of crimes um, amount to billions and billions, two-digit billions, Mm. every year in the United States. And that's where our government is not doing a very good job. Yeah. um, 
It's so uh, I praise them. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, <laughs> um, it, it is really it's really they're not in a good position with our current elected officials to be able to go to them and say, "Hey, guys, we need you to rewrite these laws and update them." Well, that's so true. Um, and what you were describing sounded like an upgrade rather than a redo. Um, it really is. And it's the same thing with our personal um, identification information laws. We do have some laws on the books. They're mm-hmm. very antiquated. They need to be upgraded. I like the way you said upgraded. Yeah. Right? Computer, computer to lingo. To protect us from things like revenge porn. Oh, Yeah. If it was in a different form, it would be illegal. But because it's online video, it's not illegal in all states. And if it was in a different form, it would be a federal crime. So these are just laws that we need to get upgraded so that they meet our current needs and our current technology and ideally write them in a way that the mode is less important. It's the crime that's committed that should be yes. important, not how you committed the crime. That way, we don't have to rewrite them with every significant change in technology. Well, that's true. And, um, yeah, what you said is exactly right. It's um, not the how, it's the what. And the intent is to harm you. And um, if I stab you or shoot you or um, post a weird video... Um, the intent was to right. harm you. So yeah, right. that's and and in that, I mean, that's a great example. So when we look at our murder statutes, none of them make a distinction between poison, <laughs> a knife, electrocution, or being shot. That's right. Right. That, that's exactly. Or right. even a car. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> you tried to kill someone. Yeah. That's what matters. It should be the same thing here with our laws. You you violated somebody's privacy. You um, published their personal identification information. You threatened them. It shouldn't matter if you're face-to-face and you tell someone you're going to rape them yeah. or if you're online and you say you're going to rape them. You're still threatening bodily harm. That's But exactly we make right. a huge distinction legally between those two things. Yeah, that's... That's so well said, and um, I'm I'm glad to know that um, that the intent and the the what and not the how, or the how and not the right. what. Now now I'm so confused. And we only have <laughs> <laughs> it is the what. So we yeah, go back what. to our agile language, right? That's the what, not the how. You're right. Yes. The what is what's important, not the how. The how is uh, is usually the least important. Right. Um, especially when we're talking about writing our laws, and it's the same thing with regulations. Mm-hmm. So we want to keep it in that same vein. I talk all the time about regulations that are written well. They're mm-hmm. focused on the what. Well, thanks. When they get when bad regulations, focus on the how, and it's checklists and blah, forms, and right? right. That's all how. Bad regulations. Well, <laughs> Good regulations. Focus on the what. What do you want? What are you trying to accomplish here and why? Right. And and laws should be focused, which laws are just for people 
regulations are just laws for organizations, right? Mm -hmm. So we should have the same standard. It is the same governing standard for both. Focus on the what and the why. Leave the how to the experts and the professionals. Right. Yeah, and and thanks for bailing me out there. I appreciate it. So um, (laughs) (laughs) with with the time we've got left... um, most of the papers and the articles that I've read on this topic were written by attorneys, and uh-huh. you talked about those earlier. But this issue is going to have to stretch way beyond the legal profession, right? Right. Yeah. And the attorneys are probably sorry, and I have friends who are attorneys, and I know some of them would vehemently agree with me. The attorneys are the people you want least involved in these kind of conversations. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, because really they're not experts in this area. Their expertise is keeping you, either putting you in jail or keeping you out of jail. Mm-hmm. The majority of attorneys are m- actually more accurately keeping you out of trouble or <laughs> right. putting you in trouble, right? Right. They're, they're, so whether you're getting sued or you're charge of the crime, you know, there's attorneys on either side of that, on both sides of that equation. So they're trying to get you in trouble or out of trouble. Right. And that's not what this is about. Um, Good governance, as we've talked about a lot, is not about being in trouble or not in trouble. It's about protecting stakeholder value. Yes. Doing the right things for the right reasons in the right way. And that's often balancing competing interests, which is not something attorneys are trained to do. They're trained to be black and white about things, not nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and as business leaders in particular, we have to be nuanced. We have to be contextual. Right. Right? That's right. And we have to... And we have to do that so that we can find that balance between sometimes conflicting priorities. Yep. And that's, that's why, right. as much as I love lawyers and almost became one, mm. um, they're not always helpful in these kind of situations. The other thing to remember is if you don't take care of your own governance, who's that first round of external governance? Lawyers. That's right. So that's the other thing is if attorneys are starting to get involved, you better watch your back and you better start taking care of your own house Mm -hmm. because that means, and we've already seen this, I mean, you've talked about the incredible, you're in question, mentioned the incredible number of papers and articles. Mm -hmm. I've been seeing the escalating number of papers and articles written by attorneys. Mm -hmm. That means that they're gearing up for that first round of external governance. So that means we as business leaders need to get our act together. And we need to beat them to the punch because we do not want them telling us how to write, run our businesses because they don't, they don't care about the what and the why. They only care about the how. That's right. They're going to tell us how to do it. And that's the worst position for us to be in as business leaders is someone else telling us how to run our business. So this is where, and I'm glad you brought this up, um, the escalating attention of attorneys should be raising everybody's blood pressure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every single business leader should be going, oh, no. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. right. <laughs> and those of us who come from regulated industries, we, we'd we rather have the government than the attorneys. 
Oh, the government is easier to work with mm-hmm. than class action attorneys and lawsuits. That's so so all of us that really, you know, that's not a red flag. That's like a pantheon of red flags that should be going up for you saying, we need to take this seriously. We need to do things differently. We need to own our own governance around these issues because we do not want lawyers being the external governance for these but, issues because they're just going to make it harder. Yeah, and you've you've said before that if you don't do it, somebody's going to do it for you. And every time, case in point. Yep. Well, they're either going to either competitors going to come and do the governance better, and then because they're going to be better at satisfying stakeholder value, or you're going to have attorneys, or the government doing it for you. So None of those options are in your are in your best interest. Yeah, I I really. I really think you've hit the nail on the head and, you know, this issue is just so dense with the others within it. You could, you could be peeling this back for months or, or even years. The, the technical overlap that occurs and intersects with our rights here in the U.S. to be, as it says in the Constitution, secure in our papers, express mm-hmm. ourselves even when we want to say something that's going to be looked upon unfavorably and engage in commerce freely are those that would cause even King Solomon to have to stop and think. So, you know, I think Wren has shown that there is a way forward here. And with the leadership from her and advocates like her, we may avoid the same levels of fear and expense that comprise the Cold War and post 9-11 America. You can read more about this really complicated issue and others like it, along with Agile, Scrum, uh, and Scaled Agile on Wren's website, which is www.wrenmelberg.com. Thank you for listening to the only podcast of its kind anywhere, and be sure to come back next week for another edition of the Guardian podcast with Wren Melberg.